All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the well. How are we doing tonight? How's the stress level in the room? <laughs> it's this. It depends on the minute, right? Uh, depends on if I'm actually thinking about what I have to do or not, or just ignoring it. Um, hey, let me, uh, let me just pray for us as we begin tonight. Father, we, uh, we, are, we are here. Help us to just be here. Some of us are here tonight and we have a long list of things that we are anxious about or worried about or stressed about, whether it's school-related or personal life, stuff that's just weighing on our hearts. God, I pray that we will come here tonight and just leave these things at your feet. And maybe some are here tonight and they don't honestly even know why they are here tonight. Or maybe they've never even been here before. But I pray that you also help them to just be here. To be fully present. To be attentive, not to my words. But we believe that you have something to say tonight. And so God, as we open your word tonight, we pray that you will speak with clarity, with conviction. Because we believe that your word is true and we believe that your word is eternal. And so we celebrate you tonight. Come, Lord Jesus. Not because we are worthy, not because I'm worthy, not because I've done any kind of work or preparation, but we just want your spirit to be here. Amen. All right. Uh, we are going to continue our series uh, following in the footsteps of Jesus in Jerusalem according to the Gospel of Mark. And we are just going to dive right in tonight. So if you have a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We have some people in the back that would love to hook you up with a Bible. Uh, we encourage you to follow along. We're going to look at a few different passages. Uh, also, if you are here tonight and you just don't own a Bible, you can take one of ours. We don't care. Uh, we think you should have one. Uh, but yeah, we're going to look at Mark chapter 14. Uh, we'll start in verse 12. And just to kind of set the stage, we're going to read a couple of verses, and then we'll stop and we'll talk about a few things. We'll read a couple more verses and stop and talk about a few things and kind of unpack the story that way together tonight. Who's ready? You guys ready? Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Okay, stop right there. The first day of unleavened bread, the day when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, they're preparing the, uh, the Passover meal. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is connected to Passover, okay? It's the same festival. It's a big holiday. We've been talking about Passover over the course of the last few weeks, uh, essentially, 
Passover was one of the three most holy days of the year, and God told his people all to go to Jerusalem to worship him over Passover. What is Passover? Why are we doing this? Well, way back in the story of Exodus, God's people, the Israelites, were enslaved to Egypt for 400 years. And the story of Passover is when the Israelites were freed from slavery and they found new life and they found freedom. And so it was a big, big, big deal. It was an eight-day festival. So Jesus and his disciples and a caravan of people are on their way to Jerusalem, and now they are in Jerusalem, and now they are getting ready. The moment is finally here. We are ready for this feast or this festival with 100,000 pilgrims or something like that. Okay? So uh, the story of the Exodus, this was their gospel. This was their good news. They were this, and then they received new life. This was what they centered their lives around. In fact, if you were to talk to a religious Jewish person today, they don't say when they were slaves in Egypt and when they found new life or when they found freedom. They say when we were in Egypt. They put themselves in that story because this is our story, right? Any March Madness fans here tonight? Okay. So uh, I know it's kind of a secret, but I'm a Michigan State fan. And when, when Michigan State wins, okay, I tend to say something like, we won the game. Because I had a lot to do with that, but somehow it's we, right? But if they don't win, they lost, right? We do that in our language with our sports teams, I think. We, we celebrate and we identify when we say we, because we have this affiliation, but yeah, they suck. It wasn't my fault. Um, but to the Jewish people, it's, it is our story. This is our story. When we were enslaved in Egypt, we, we studied in Jerusalem with a Jewish rabbi, and that's what he said every single time, when we were in Egypt. He never said when they. This is their story. This is our story. Uh, the text also says, um, the first day of unleavened bread, it's when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, this is actually the day, so Jesus was sacrificed or crucified on Passover, okay? Now, in our calendar, we think this is the Last Supper, and it happens on Thursday night, and he's crucified on Good Friday, right? In our calendar, and the way our time works, at midnight, that's when we begin a new day, right? In their calendar, the new day begins at sundown. Okay, so this day is the same day as the crucifixion for them. Okay, because the sun had just set and now they are beginning to prepare this feast. And why do they begin their day at sunset? Well, because in Genesis chapter 1, there was evening and there was morning the first day. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Yeah, whatever. Um, that is why they use their days that way. Let's start over. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? 
And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Okay, we'll stop there again. There are such funny things in the story when you just stop long enough and look at them, right? So Jesus sends two of his disciples and says, hey, go on to the city, and you're going to find a man carrying a jar. Follow him. And wherever he goes, you just go into that guy's house, and then we'll prepare the feast there, right? Like when I think about this, I think, okay, so did Jesus just know that was going to happen and set it up that way? Or did Jesus already have a side conversation with this dude and said, okay, now I want you to stand right here, and at this time, I want you to walk from here to here, and I will send my disciples at that time to come and meet you here so they know that you are standing here and you need to, they need to follow you there. Anybody else think about these things when they read stories like this? Or am I just really weird? Okay, I know the answer. I am really weird. That's fine. I can handle it. Um, it's also interesting, usually... Typically, it was women who carried jars of water around in, the, in that culture. And so to see a man carrying a jar of water it would have been easy to identify. Just a side note. Anyway, okay, so they are preparing the Passover meal. The Passover meal, a couple things about that. Uh, tip, sometimes it's called a, a Seder meal nowadays. Uh, it was a very, very, very long meal. It was a long feast. It could last four or five hours. It would begin with two cups of wine, usually diluted, uh, and then they would have their meal, and their meal was unleavened bread, and they would have some things to dip the bread in, and then they would end the meal with two more cups of wine. And the entire thing, they were telling the story of Passover, and they're remembering and they're re-narrating the story. And every single thing they do along the way and everything they eat and everything they drink symbolized something from our story. For example, they had four cups of wine that they used for this feast. In Exodus chapter 6, uh, God uses four expressions, ex expressions of redemption uh, in describing the exodus from Egypt. And they would drink a cup of wine for each one of these redeeming phrases, celebrating their redemption. Okay, let me read this, uh, these verses to you. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from, the slavery, from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Okay? So there's four phrases of redemption in these sentences. The first one is, I will bring you out. And with this phrase, they would drink the first cup of wine, and it was the cup of sanctification. The cup of sanctification was the first cup. And then the second phrase is, I will deliver you. The second cup of wine would be the cup of deliverance, okay? The third was, I will redeem you. So then they have the meal, and then they drink the third cup, and the third cup is the cup of redemption. Uh, and then the last phrase is, I will take you to be my people uh, the fourth cup would be the cup of restoration, okay? So two cups, 
the meal, two cups. Diluted wine, likely. Uh, 14, verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Okay, this is a, a pretty common story. We, a lot of us know the story of the Last Supper. Okay, it's familiar. This uh, picture that's not popping up, there we go, is also probably a familiar painting to many of you, right? This is Leonardo da Vinci's depiction of the Last Supper. And I am not an artist by any means, but this is a beautiful piece of art that I deeply admire. However, I don't think da Vinci knew a whole lot about first century Passover meal stuff. So let me point out a few things in this painting that I think are wrong. If you look behind Jesus here, you see that it is daylight. The Passover meal would have taken place after sunset, right? And if you look at all these nice gentlemen here, they are all white Europeans. <laughs> also probably not true as far as accuracy goes, right? Uh, also, all these guys are like, you know, 40 or 50 years old. Culturally, the disciples probably were high school or college-age students. Peter was probably the oldest. He could have been 20 or so, but for the most part, they were, uh, you know, a lot younger than that. Uh, they were also missing some components of the meal. I don't really see the lamb here, and they're just missing some things as far as, like, what's actually happening on the uh, Passover feast. And also, they're, they're sitting down at this really nice long table. Now, let me ask you guys a question. Have you ever gone to a restaurant with like six or 10 or 12 of your friends and you said to the waitress, hey, we would all like to sit on the same side of the table. <laughs> Have you ever done that before? Have you ever had a big feast with all your friends and you all sat in a line? That's just weird. Like, how'd that conversation go, right? You know? Anyway, okay, so that's just a couple things about da Vinci's amazing piece of art, okay? The text also says that they were reclining at table and eating. This tells us something else about what they are doing and what they are not doing here. They are reclining at table, okay? So this is, culturally speaking, this would have been known as a triclinium. Say triclinium. Triclinium means, tri means, good job, and clinium means to recline, okay? So I need 13 volunteers to come on up here. I need some help. 13 volunteers. You don't have to say anything. Just come on up. I need some help. 13 people. Come on up. Grab a pillow. Grab a pillow and put your pillow on one of these blue pieces of tape. Put your pillow on one of the blue pieces of tape. Uh, don't sit down yet. Just put your pillow on the blue piece of tape and stand by your pillow. Okay? Stand by your pillow, blue piece of tape. 
Okay, triclinium. So it's got three sides, one, two, and three. Okay, now I need you to stand on the outside of your pillow. Good job. Proud of you. Um, squeeze in tight. There you go. Okay, now I need you to recline at table. And what I mean by that is I need you to lay down and put your left elbow on your pillow and just put your feet straight out. And for those of you that are over here, just be careful of the cords and wires and stuff because we like Freddie and our music stuff, okay? You guys are looking good, okay? <laughs> now they're spooning. That's weird. <laughs> anyway, okay, so they are laying, they are reclining at table, okay? And when you recline at table at a triclinium, you lean with your left arm, you got your feet out, and you use your right hand to, you know, take the bread and dip it into the dish and all that kind of stuff. Okay? Uh, you guys just hang out here. Yep, we're going to pretend that there's a four or five inch table kind of in the middle. And it's probably a little bit bigger and wider than that, but we're making it fit on a small stage. Okay. Um, the meal included loaves of unleavened bread, several things to dip the bread in, including bitter herbs as they tell the story of the Exodus. This was the Last Supper. John's gospel actually gives us additional details that Mark does not include. So turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Okay? So John gives us some indication of where some of the disciples might have been sitting around the table. And culturally speaking, where you sat is significant. Because for a triclinium meal like this, the placement of each guest kind of depicted or denoted a level of hierarchy of where you were supposed to sit, okay? Um, kind of like the least to the greatest sort of thing. Uh, anyway, within the cultural context, here's what we can assume. The host of the meal would have sat second from the end, and the host of the meal is Jesus, Congratulations. You didn't know what you were signing up for tonight, but you just became Jesus for the moment. So we're pretty proud of you for that. That's awesome. Okay? So the host is Jesus. Pretty, seems pretty straightforward. Okay? Now, look at John chapter 13, verse 23. Left arm, people. Left arm. Not both arms. Left arm. Left arm. There you go. You're eating. Uh, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side, okay? So John says that he is the one whom Jesus loved. So he kind of like self-proclaimed, I am the one that Jesus loved, right? So a little bit of a, you know, arrogance, I think, in my opinion. But anyway, he's describing himself, and he, said, he tells us where he is sitting, he is sitting next to Jesus with his back against Jesus' side or against Jesus' chest. Literally, the Greek would say that. So with that being said, the person in front of Jesus would be our friend Travis, okay? So Travis is John, the disciple John, and this seat had, this was like the right-hand man, okay? You are the right-hand man, and you are uh, one who has a significant level of responsibility, not only for the meal, but you're also kind of Jesus' right-hand man with other things as well. It's interesting to me that later on the cross, Jesus says to John, take care of my mother. 
you are my right hand. I need you to step in and fill in this role for me, okay? So we got John and we got Jesus. On your left arm, John. <laughs> All right. Verse 24. They're trying to figure out who is going to betray Jesus. So Simon Peter motioning to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? So somebody is able to have good eye contact with John. Based on this setting here, I think Peter has to be sitting right here, right on the end, okay? Because there's not a lot of people that can make good eye contact with John because he's like, you make it remember those, uh, those station wagons with the back seat and you face the back? You like have a whole different trip than everybody else in your family, right? I feel like that's John right here. <laughs> not really part of the, I don't know how you have a conversation with a lot of people when you're facing the other direction, but um, anyway, so Peter is trying to get John's attention and say, hey, ask Jesus, who is it? We want to know who it is that is going to betray Jesus. Now, it's in, what's interesting is if this is Peter here on the end, Peter is sitting in what is known as the servant's seat. The servant's seat. The lowest position. The lowest spot. Why would Peter be placed here? I mean, wasn't Peter, weren't Peter and Jesus really close in relationship? Didn't Jesus walk very closely with, with Peter and give Peter a new name and say, you're no longer Simon, I'm going to call you the rock. And I'm going to build my church around you and you are going to be a rabbi with disciples and you're going to be a foundational piece in the church. And even though all of those things are true, Jesus still placed Peter in the spot of a servant. Now, we don't know this for sure, but I think Peter could have been upset about this. He feels like maybe he didn't deserve to be sitting in that seat. Maybe he's a little bit jealous of John. But Jesus places Peter and the role of a servant because he thinks Peter still has some things to learn about what it means to be a servant leader. And if this isn't enough, it's also interesting in John chapter 13, it's the story of where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. That should have been the role of the servant who was at the table. Eventually, the servant does not do it, so Jesus gets up and says, I will do it. And nobody objects to Jesus doing it until he comes to Peter, because Peter knows that that's what he was supposed to be doing. It's hard to know, it's hard to really describe this cultural context for us nowadays, right? We don't really know anything about having triclinians. We don't really know what it's like to be servants by washing each other's feet. Maybe you do that, but it's just weird in our context, right? Because it's not, this is not our culture. Maybe it would be something like a high-ranking official. President of the United States is found scrubbing toilets in the White House. Like, that just doesn't compute because you got other people that are supposed to do that kind of dirty work. But Jesus places Peter here and says, you've got some things to learn about leadership and about what it means to be a servant. Anyway, the trivia question that is at hand is that Peter and John are trying to figure out, who is it? 
Who's the one that's going to betray Jesus? This is what we were trying to figure out, okay? So verse 26, Jesus answers the question and says, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Okay, so Jesus is leaning on her left elbow here and is sharing, dipping bread and sharing the bowl with Judas right... Sorry, Judas. We got Judas right over here. So Judas is right on the backside of Jesus, okay? And we can determine this based on just proximity, likely, anyway. What's interesting about where Judas is sitting, culturally speaking, this seat was known as the seat of honor or the guest of honor. Think about this for a minute. Why in the world would Jesus put Judas in this seat as the guest of honor when Jesus knows what's happening in five minutes? In about five minutes, he's going to be betrayed and he's going to be crucified and it's over. And in a moment like that, when Jesus knows it's coming, he says, Judas... I'm going to put you right here next to me so that you never, ever forget that my love for you is unconditional. Even though you're about to do this, this is how much I love you. You are still a guest of honor at my table. Isn't that awesome? Hey, let's give these guys a hand up here. You guys can just throw those pillows over there along the wall. That would be, that would be helpful. Thank you, guys. We don't have absolute certainty that this is exactly the way it happened. We have some good historical cultural references that help us paint this picture. But I think it's helpful either way. And when I think about this, I think, who, who am I when I sit here? Maybe some of you tonight are feeling a little bit like Peter, where you feel like, man, I... I've been following Jesus. I've got this thing going on. I feel good about my, my journey and my relationship. And I feel maybe it's a little bit of pride, but a little bit of just entitlement of what the next thing is going to be. And I'm going to be elevated to a different position of leadership. Or some sort of like, I've worked really hard and therefore I deserve to have this. I've worked really hard in school, and therefore I deserve to have this kind of a job. I've gotten the good grades, and therefore I deserve to have this kind of internship. Or I've done these kinds of things, and therefore I'm really, I've been praying very fervently for our relationship, and therefore I deserve to have this. 
whatever it is. There are times when I feel entitled to things, where I feel like I deserve more than where I'm actually at or more than what I'm actually given. And so the question for the Peters in the room tonight is, can you serve where Jesus puts you? Can you serve where Jesus puts you? You're hoping to get this job and you get a job as a gas station attendant. (laughs) Can you serve where Jesus puts you? You're thinking about campus ministry leadership for next year and you're hoping to do this, but somehow it doesn't work out and you do this instead. Can you serve where Jesus puts you? Can you serve where Jesus puts you? Maybe some of you are here tonight and you identify with our friend Judas. You've betrayed Jesus. You've stabbed him in the back or you've turned your back on him. Through your words, through the way you live your life, whatever it is. And you feel this guilt and you feel this shame, but you keep running in the other direction. You keep falling down and you keep rejecting him or betraying him. I felt like Judas before. And if you feel like Judas tonight, hear this. Jesus invites you to come and sit at his table. And not just any place at his table, but as the guest of honor. Because his love for you is unconditional. You can't screw up too much. Have you done worse than Judas? You can't screw up too much. Or maybe you're here tonight and you just realize you simply need to be more like Jesus, who offers grace upon grace upon grace. Anybody here ever been stabbed in the back before? Metaphorically speaking, obviously. (laughs) Been betrayed before? There's all these feelings and emotions that come up when this kind of stuff happens, right? And you're angry and you're mad and you want revenge and you just do really stupid things because you just don't know what to do with it. Time is it. I'm going to do it. Okay, I'm going to share a quick story. I didn't share this at the last service, so bonus points for you guys. So when I was a junior in high school, uh, I was a very different person than I am now. Uh, and I made a lot of poor life choices, so I'll just preface it by saying that. Uh, when I was a junior in high school, uh, it was time for prom, right? Pretty excited about prom. And so I asked this girl, her name was Jenny or Jennifer, uh, to come to prom with me. And I didn't really know her that well. She went to my church, but, you know, whatever. But I also knew that she was a little bit crazy, and I was a little bit crazy. I mean, I partied actually a lot in high school, and I knew that she did as well. So like, this would be a good match, right? Uh, so I, I asked her to come to prom with me. And then my best friend, Brian, okay, Brian and I were like bromance, okay, full-on bromance, middle school through high school, we were inseparable. People at other schools would hear about Ben and Brian, they didn't even know which one was which, they just knew that we were a thing, right, in a weird way, not a weird way. Anyway, so, so Brian 
we had this group of friends, and Brian asked our friend Bree to just go to prom with him. There was nothing there. It was just, hey, we're just friends. Will you just come to this dance with me, right? And it was, there was nothing weird about it. However, between the time that Brian asked our friend Bree to go to him with prom, Brian's younger brother was also friends with Bree, and Brian's younger brother actually started dating Bree. So now, <laughs> yeah, well, this got weird, right? <laughs> so now my friend Brian is taking his brother's girlfriend to prom. It's just a little weird, but Brian was like, it's fine, we're just friends, it's no big deal, right? But then we get to prom, and Brian completely ignored Bree the whole night. But he found my date a little bit attractive. Yeah, yeah, that happened. All night long, that happened. And our whole friend group was like, what the crap is going on? Aren't you so ticked off at Brian right now? I'm like, it's fine, we're friends. I'm just friends with Jen, you know, it's, we're cool. And then I got home that night and I realized, no, that was freaking stupid. <laughs> I was mad, right? I was so, like, I don't get mad very often. I was so mad at my friend Brian for the next few days. I made some poor life choices. I went for like an angry drive for like an hour and smoked a bunch of cigarettes while I was doing that. Like it was just really dumb, right? I know, right? What's wrong with me? <laughs> but then eventually I just woke up one morning and I was like, this is dumb. Brian, I, Brian and I, we should just be friends. Let's just talk about it. Let's get over it and let's move on. Why do I say that story? Because when we are betrayed, it hurts. And we want revenge. I want Brian to, <laughs> right? But then we have Jesus. Then we have Jesus sitting here and he says, Judas, I know what you're about to do. And it doesn't even matter because my love for you is way bigger than that. It's way bigger than that. So when we are betrayed, hopefully we can act a little bit more like Jesus and not like I did when I was a junior in high school. And as we do these things, we show the world the kind of love that Jesus has for us. In fact, think about this. This is the very last meal of Jesus' entire life. This is the last moment Jesus has with his disciples before he is led away to the cross. And the very last thing he says in John chapter 13, after all of this stuff, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And if you do this, and when you do this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one one another. We are called to love with this kind of love. To love our neighbors, to love our enemies, to love those who betray us. Jump back to Mark 14 with me. Mark 14, Mark 14, not Matthew, verse 22. And as they were eating the Passover meal, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, 
This is my body. The Passover bread was unleavened bread. You were not allowed to even have leaven anywhere near your home when it came to Passover. That was just their tradition. It's still the tradition to this day. So much so that they spend days ahead of time cleaning out anything that could be leaven in their house. They clear it all out. They even have bonfires in the streets with anything that they need to burn so that they don't have this stuff in their house. Leaven became a metaphor for sin. And if you think about this in light of what Jesus is doing here on Passover, Jesus' body is unleavened bread. It is without sin. His body was able to be a sacrifice on our behalf for our sin. And so we take the bread tonight and we remember his pure body. Verse 23, And Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. After the meal, Jesus takes a cup. He blesses the cup, and the disciples drink this cup. Which cup is it that takes place after the meal? Does anybody remember? The third cup. Okay, two cups, meal, third cup, fourth cup. So this is after the meal. Now they're, now they're drinking the third cup, which is the cup of redemption. And Jesus drank it symbolizing the incredible redeeming work he was about to do later that same day on the cross. We're celebrating our redemption from Egypt, but I'm going to celebrate true redemption for all time as I drink this cup, as we drink this cup together. Uh, Verses 24, And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when I read these verses, it seems to me that Jesus decided to not drink the fourth cup. He drinks the third cup and then he says he's not going to drink of the vine again until he drinks it new in the kingdom of God. And what was the fourth cup? The fourth cup was the cup of restoration. The cup of restoration when the people will reconnect with God. And so when we take communion together tonight, I feel like we live between the third and the fourth cup. Jesus drank the third cup. He drank the third cup as a, as a symbol of our redemption. He offered his blood and his body as a sacrifice for our sin, redeeming us. But then he says, I'm not going to drink the fourth cup until I come again. And so tonight when we take communion, we take it in a way to remember and to celebrate his redeeming of our lives. But it's not only to look back and to look at the present of our redemption, but it's also to look ahead in anticipation of when we will see him again. And I don't think we emphasize that piece enough when we look forward to his return. In some ways, because it's just weird. We don't know what it looks like or what that's going to be, and we just kind of assume that it hasn't happened for 
2,000 years, so it probably won't happen in our lifetime, right? But I think we are called to live in hope and anticipation of his return so that we can be with him again in full restoration. Tonight, we are going to celebrate Jesus' Last Supper, and we're going to take communion together. And whether you feel like Peter tonight, maybe you feel a sense of disappointment or pride or entitlement with whatever, thinking you deserve a different seat at the table, or whether you're here tonight and you feel like Judas, someone who is completely unworthy to even have a seat at the table, let alone as a guest of honor. Jesus reminds all of us that all of us have a seat at his table tonight.